Well, friends, we uh, come in that part of our service where we come to the uh, hearing of God's Word. And uh, in particular, I'll have you open to Isaiah 37 if you like to follow along uh, in your Bible. Some people uh, like to just listen. Um, it's always helpful to have the written words out there so you can see that what you're uh, having, uh, what you're hearing from the pulpit is matching up with the text. Uh, might uh, make things clearer for you as well. But today we come to Isaiah 37, continuing in this series through the book of Isaiah. Now, to get you up to speed, uh, we've learned about how the Assyrians were threatening Jerusalem. Uh, the Assyrians were sweeping through uh, the country um, like a flood, and they came to Jerusalem, the last city that was left. All the cities of Jerusalem were conquered, and the Assyrian uh, king sent his orator, the Rabshakeh, to threaten Jerusalem, to get them to just surrender. We heard about that in the last uh, section, uh, chapter 36, and uh, yet God delivered his people. Hezekiah went to the prophet Isaiah. It's a narrative section that we're in. And the Lord intervened um, because he would not be, be mocked. Uh, look at uh, verses 7 and 8 before I read uh, the whole thing. Behold, God says, I will put a spirit in him, the Assyrian, so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard the king had left Lachish. In other words, there's a reprieve for God's people at this moment, uh, but we're going to see that doesn't always last. There's more threats coming, um, and we're picking up here in verse 9 of Isaiah 37, and we'll finish this chapter all the way through verse uh, 38. And before I read it, I want the kids to think about dominoes, uh, those little things called dominoes. Maybe you've seen the domino runs that people set up in their homes where you hit one domino and then they all fall. Uh, they're, they're linked together. Um, and sometimes it's glorious how far these dominoes can go. But sometimes you notice that on the domino runs, there's a section that didn't get properly connected to another. And so it doesn't run while all the rest of the domino run goes. Um, I want you to think about who you're linked to. Uh, links are very powerful. We think about chain links, how they make something strong. Um, I watched a video uh, in the last few months about how these people linked arms so they could rescue a dog that was in a ditch uh, in, the, in a storm. Uh, who you're linked to or what you're linked to can be very important in your life. And I want you to think about that as we read God's Word. So if you're able to stand uh, comfortably now as I read from Isaiah 37, please stand. And hear God's word from Isaiah 37, verses 9 through 38. Now the king heard concerning Tirkanah, the king of Cush, he had set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my father destroyed, Gozan, Haran, 
Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvim, the king of Hena, or the king of Ivna? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord." Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel." By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells, and I drank waters to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap, and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a temnant, out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down a hundred and eighty-five thousand in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adramelech and Sherezar, his sons struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, 
Esau hardened his son, reigned in his place. That is the hearing of God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a light to our path. We pray that you would give us insight and understanding. Give us hearts not of stone but of flesh. Lord, hearts that respond to your word, that, that appreciate spiritual things. Lord, we need your spirit to do this, uh, to work powerfully in each of us. Uh, Lord, to bring forth the proper fruits in response that your word deserves. And Lord, mold us by your word. Transform us. Make us more and more like Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please do have a seat. Well, I, I seem to always start out with questions. And the question that I'll start out with today is, are you a person of courage? Are you someone who you could call a courageous person? Um, courage is really a fascinating character trait. Uh, as I've studied courage over the years, it's clearly not an, an absence of fear completely, but it's acting despite fearful circumstances. Courage is needed when you're in a fox hill, a foxhole that's being bombed. Courage is needed when you're facing a difficult medical diagnosis or sharing the gospel, maybe dealing with a difficult family situation. I was thinking about the courage uh, that we saw a few years ago from Christians in China uh, when they testified to their faith in Christ. They're testifying to the that there is another world. There's more than you can see with your eyes. And in fact, the, the pastor who penned this famous letter is still in prison in China. It takes courage to do those things. Uh, and it's interesting that in English we have these prefixes that we've added to courage, right? To encourage or to discourage. And things, circumstances in our life can discourage us. And you see that here in Isaiah. God's people needed courage in this moment as the Assyrians are bearing down on them. Even though courage is never used in this section, the people of God needed courage. And as we hear the events of this chapter, I want you to see how God's people received courage then, how you can receive courage through Christ today. But first, we have to see the discouraging words uh, that Sennacherib's henchmen sent uh, to Jerusalem. Now, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he may have delayed his attack, his siege on uh, Jerusalem for a little while, but he wanted them to know he's coming back. They may as well surrender right now because they could save themselves some bloodshed. He hears word of uh, a potential enemy. So he has to give his attention to the uh, king of Cush, who also controlled Egypt. Uh, and so he sends this word, these messengers to Hezekiah, hoping Hezekiah will just surrender Jerusalem, giving up without a fight. Uh, verses 9 through 13 give us the, their words. They're very interesting. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my father, fathers destroyed? And it goes on. Can you imagine getting that message, hearing those words? Um, this king is telling Hezekiah that the Lord 
and his prophet Isaiah are lying to them. They're deceiving them, thinking that they have any hope. He's saying, this nation, your nation, you're just like all the rest. All these other gods, they didn't stop us. Will your God save you? Of course, that's the very interesting question, right? Are God's people just like all the nations? Or is there something different about them? This is the very, the very question that the exiles are dealing with in Isaiah 27, right? Has God destroyed us? Has he punished us just like all the other nations? And the answer, of course, is no, that God doesn't treat his people the same way he treats everyone else. He calls his people his treasured possession, the apple of his eye. And so in the face of this, what is it that gives God's people courage? Well, we're going to see prayer is the central theme here. God hears prayer, even the prayers of weak people. And God will not be mocked. He will answer prayer. He is sovereign over all people. And then we're going to see that God links himself to his people. Now, perhaps you can imagine getting a troubling letter yourself. There's some letters that you don't want to get. I remember getting a letter from the IRS a few years ago that I uh, didn't appreciate getting. Um, Hezekiah receives this letter from Sennacherib. And what does he do? He goes right to the temple and he lays it out before the Lord and he prays. And I want you to see the power of prayer here. Uh, verse 16, look at his prayer. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Why is it that we pray? Why is it that you pray? Certainly God already knows what you need, but he tells us to pray. And one of the things that I've found that I think is confirmed here in Isaiah 37 is that prayer brings the identity of God before our hearts and our minds. Prayer directs us to God that we might think about who he is and what he does. We have to think about who we're interacting with, who we're praying to. Hezekiah praises the Lord simply by identifying him here in these verses. He's the Lord of hosts. He's got all the armies of heaven at his disposal. He's enthroned above the angels. And note the key point. He says, you alone are the God, your true God, not all these other gods. And you're the God of all the kingdoms of the earth, not just localized, not just our God, but the God of all places and all peoples. Uh, God is not limited by a location. He made everything, in fact. He rules all of it. Uh, and I think it's interesting that you think about the, the call he gives. You have eyes, open them. You have ears, open them. What a contrast that is to idols. In Scripture, they're, they're known as those who have eyes, but can't see, who have ears and can't hear. 
And these themes are going to come up again and again in the book of Isaiah. Um, chapter five, uh, chapter 45 is going to say, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there is no God. Think about this. When you are going through discouraging circumstances, do you pray? Do you bring the identity of God before your heart? Go to the Lord in prayer. Consider who He is and what He does. Psalm 112 says of the godly person, He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. When you think about it, God stands above all of our problems. They're small to Him, even though they may seem so big to us. I know I've read this to you before, but Charles Spurgeon points out just the benefits that prayer gives us in, in contemplating God or meditating on who God is. He says, Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, magnify the soul of a man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation into the great subject of the deity. And, and while it's humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. There is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity. You shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace in the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And friends, no, this is another reason why you're not to be a child, but you're called to grow up in your knowledge of God and who He is, in your theology. Uh, seek understanding of who God is. It's practical. Helps you debunk the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, it helps you pray. It's very practical. And here, Hezekiah in his prayer debunks the claims of the Assyrian king. Uh, in the letter, we saw this like in the Rabshakeh's um, words in the last chapter, God has been lumped together with all these idol idols, the pagan deities that other people trusted in. But Hezekiah knows God's not like these things. They weren't really gods at all. Verse 18, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands. Therefore, they were destroyed. Hezekiah apparently has been listening to the prophet Isaiah because isn't this what Isaiah has been saying the whole time? Don't trust in idols. They're the work of people in men's hands. And Hezekiah next does something that's very profound in that he appeals to God to defend his own name. He prays like someone who knows that he doesn't have any merit to stand on. He doesn't have any goodness to claim God's protection, but he says, God, defend your own name, and in doing so, defend us. Incline your ear, verse 17, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. So now, O Lord our God, verse 20, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. What a great prayer that is. That Save us 
that others might know your power. It's like Psalm 67, right? God, bless us that others might see your blessing and praise you. Do we pray like this when we're in discouraging circumstances? I think our prayerless seasons, our prayerless hours uh, are all too often. And when we pray, not only do we bring who God is to our minds, we should pray God's promises back to Him. We should pray His Word back to Him. And we should connect ourselves to Him and see who we are to Him and pray that He he is glorified. And we're going to see in a few minutes the power of God um, doing things for His His own name's sake. But I want you to see another application of this first uh, in terms of prayer. Not only do we pray when we're beaten down and under pressure, but we pray despite our weaknesses, despite our lack of, of any good standing other than Jesus Christ. Remember Hezekiah's mistakes and failings, right? He's in the situation in part because of his own folly. Remember, he tried to make an alliance with other nations. We're going to hear in chapter 39 how he invited the Babylonians into the ten- into his own palace. Not a great idea. Um, prior to these events, the chron- chronology is a little different. But we also hear in Hezekiah that he's tried to bribe enemies away by selling out the very treasure of the temple. Now, he's evaluated as a fairly good king, but he makes mistakes, and yet he prays here. He goes to the Lord, right? Isn't that one of the differences about godly people? It's not that they don't make mistakes. It's that when they make mistakes, they bow down on their knees and they repent and they go to the Lord and they pray. Uh, Hezekiah here prays and the Lord answers his prayer. One commentator says, the kneeling king may be wholly unworthy, but the king on the throne is full of power, grace, and sufficiency. Friends, pray in tough circumstances, even when it's your own folly that's gotten you in that position, because the focus of your deliverance is not on yourself and your own works. The focus is on God and His goodness and His grace. And God answers prayers. We'll see at the end of this chapter. Um, Notice, this also says God planned it out all ahead of time. Um, He doesn't change because of our prayers. He doesn't need convincing like the unjust judge in Luke 18. Prayer is not some battering ram by which we gain entrance to God's treasury, says John Calvin. It is a receptacle by which we receive that which he already longs to give us. In other words, we pray for these things that God has already ordained for us to pray for and for him to answer our prayers. And so prayer um, is a struggle, but it's not a struggle with God. It's a struggle of our own hearts. Sinclair Ferguson says, prayer involves struggle, but the struggle is not of our persuading our God. It is the struggle of being subdued by God, coming out of the dark and secret places in which we've been hiding the truth about ourselves, laying the whole of our lives before him. James 5 reminds us of this. In Sunday school, we've been going through 1 Kings, and we're going to see Elijah praying for drought. James says this is an example that means that you can pray too, even with your weaknesses, because Elijah prayed, and he had a nature like yours. 
and God heard his prayer. This chapter bears this out. And look, look at verse 21. It says, because you have prayed, because you've prayed, we're going to see that God is not going to be mocked. He answers prayer. We know the Bible tells us in Galatians 6 that God is not mocked. We also see it here. God returns the trash talk of the Assyrians uh, in these verses, verse 21 through 23. Uh, Hezekiah's officials had said uh, that we're like a, a powerless woman at the point of giving birth. We have no strength. And here, in God's words, he takes that image and says, no, Jerusalem is like a woman turning down a, a, a suitor that's unsuitable. She's scoffing. She's shaking her head at you, um, the, the woman of, that is Jerusalem. She despises you. And then God links himself with his people. And he says he's not going to be mocked. Uh, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice? The God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. This is a name that Isaiah loves. He's going to say, this is, God is the Holy One. And when you think about what that means, it means that God is set apart. That's what holiness gets at, that you're set apart. You're not polluted. You're unstained. You're different. Our God, the God of Isaiah 37, is not like all the gods of the nations, the gods that the Assyrians conquered, so-called gods, of course. God is unique, and he defines reality. And while Assyria has exalted itself, the Lord, he says, is the one who planned all of this long ago. Uh, Verses 24 to 29 here, Isaiah points us to the plan and promise of God and his sovereignty, his sovereignty. You know, human beings think that they make everything happen, but here the truth comes out that God planned this long ago. And it reminds me of Acts chapter 2, that great section that says, You wicked people, you crucified Jesus, but God planned it beforehand. And here, this is the reality. God knows every hair on the head of these persecutors. I know you're sitting down, you're going out and coming in, you're raging against me. Uh, He says that he's planned this out long ago that the Assyrians should come in and devastate the land. He planned this. Assyria shouldn't get a big head. Because this is the Lord's doing, even though Assyria is responsible, of course. And then verse 29, Because you've raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, put my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Isn't this one of the great pictures of God's greatness? Just like in the book of Job when it says that God can put a dinosaur-like creature on a leash and lead it around like a pet. Here God says he's going to put his his bit in the mouth of Assyria and lead them away. Can you picture uh, leading someone by their nose ring? You get the image here. And the Assyrians actually did this with prisoners, but God says this is what he's going to do. He's in complete control. We, we should take that to heart, shouldn't we? In a day when everything looks so different around us, it looks so out of control, we trust the Lord is in complete control. Psalm 2 is a good example of that, right? It says, why do the the nations plot and rage against the Lord and his anointed? Uh, They rage in vain. God's control of history should give us courage, 
just as it gave God's people of old courage. And before we get to how God answered uh, this prayer, notice that God promises a sign that he's going to save his people, that he's going to redeem them, he's going to deliver them. He's going to say that after these Assyrians go, he's going to rebuild the agriculture of the land. And what's amazing is this sign is going to be that crops grow up where there wasn't planting done. He's showing that he's the God who raises the dead. He's the God who creates from nothing. And so normally, of course, you only have crops when you've planted, and yet the Assyrian invasion prevented the planting. But a sign is going to be that in the next three years, there's going to be a full return of agriculture beyond ordinary means. And then the Lord says, your city is safe. He tells that to Hezekiah. Sennacherib will not breach it. He won't bring his shields and so forth. But I want you to notice what God says here about linking himself to his people. Because notice the powerful motivations and the statements that God gives in these promises. Uh, Look at verse 32. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Where have you heard that before? You might remember Isaiah chapter uh, 9. One of those great passages that we read at Christmas time says, For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is going to do this. Redemption is not something that we do for ourselves, but it's something that the zeal, the passion of the Lord accomplishes. God sends the Savior when human uh, salvation could do nothing. It's a reminder of what Jonah said, salvation belongs to the Lord, or as Isaiah's name means, the Lord is salvation And friends, that's very practical. That should give you courage and encouragement to know that the Lord's zeal is behind your redemption, not your own zeal. Our God has a zeal that never never tires, even though ours does. You think about it, we're hot and cold in our passions for everything, right? Even for our loved ones, but especially for our God. We're hot and we're cold. We're lukewarm. Our faith falters. Our zeal falters. But you hear this statement and the many others like it in Scripture and you know that the zeal of the Lord accomplishes this. God is zealous for His own glory. He's zealous for the redemption of His people. He is glorified in saving you. Because notice what Hezekiah, uh, what God also tells Hezekiah, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. You see that in verse 32, verse 30, 35. God says, I'm going to do this for my own sake, for the sake of the covenant that I made with David. You could later, this is a good Sunday afternoon activities to go back home Look through your Bible, your biblical concordance, and see all the times where God says, I'm going to do this for my own sake or the sake of my own glory. 
It's a powerful thing. I thought about opening this sermon with asking that question, are you linked to God? Because it's not a way we often think about ourselves. We know what it's like to be linked to other people, right? Husbands and wives are linked to one another. Uh, they even have a, a legal status, joint uh, filing taxes jointly, right? Children grow up with a family name. Or they're linked to that family, not only by blood, but by name. The civil government uh, has representatives elected that are linked to a specific location. The church has elders linked to the congregation. Are we linked to God? Are you linked to the Lord? It was something that was taken for granted in the ancient world that you were linked to your God. The Assyrian king here lumps Israel in with her God, just as all the other nations are, are lumped in with their idols that they worshipped. But we don't think about that. We go through the daily struggles of our life thinking that we're on our own, even if we bear the name Christian. And Isaiah here links God to his people in a very powerful way in persecution, but also in redemption. God takes this seriously. He links himself to his people. Uh, sometimes we don't think that he cares so much about the realities of our life, that he doesn't care as much as we do, but the reality is he cares far more deeply than we do about our sin, about our circumstances, about his own name, about our redemption and vindication. This is why I had us read Acts 9 and, and see that amazing reality that Jesus, even though his church is being persecuted, he tells Saul that he's being persecuted. Why are you persecuting me? When the church is persecuted and threatened, Jesus is threatened and persecuted. He's linked himself to his people. And Isaiah 37 gives us this principle as well, the principle of the Christian life, that God saves you not because of your works, but because of God's own zeal for his own glory and because he saves you for the sake of someone else. Just as he said, here I'm saving you for the sake of David. We're saved for the sake of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, for the sake of my servant, David. David, of course, is the Lord's anointed, right? That's the word Messiah that we get in Hebrew, uh, in Greek, Christ. God treats you based on Jesus Christ, another, David's greater son, the Lord's anointed. And notice God has staked himself. He's linked himself to you. Hebrews uh, uses this theme. It says Christ is our guarantor. We might think of that as someone who takes our debt, uh, who co-signs something for us so that if we can't pay, he's on the hook for it. He pays the debt. God has linked himself to your redemption. He linked himself to his people. Remember, Moses appeals to this. God, save us because if you let us get destroyed, what are the nations going to say about you? I think we hear echoes of this in 2 Timothy. This amazing but puzzling statement in 2 Timothy 2. The saying is trustworthy. If we've died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There's power in those words. He cannot deny himself. He's concerned about his own glory. It's true he cannot deny his perfectly righteous son entrance into heaven. So if you're 
being seen through the lens of Christ. He can't deny you entrance into heaven. But I think that the point here is that God doesn't go back on His promises. He cannot do that. He cannot lie. He cannot do what would take away from His own glory. And so your well-being and your salvation, if it's linked to Him, He cannot deny you because He cannot deny Himself. And we see God does vindicate His people and His own name here at the end of this chapter. I won't read to you verses 36-38. through 38. It's that great moment when God miraculously destroyed the Assyrian army in one night. The angel of the Lord in a scene that reminds us of the Passover um, strikes down this army without any human means, without any human agency. This is a miracle. And Isaiah is not interested in giving us the play-by-play of, of all the Assyrian movements and where they were and all that. He wants us to know the bottom line. Assyria mocked the Lord, threatened God's people, and the angel of the Lord struck them down. And notice the, the very ending of this. This is going to play into the next chapter. We're going to hear this next time. Sennacherib, who mocked God, he went back to Assyria. He's in the temple of his God. And even there in the temple of his God, praying to his God, he gets struck down because his God is not a God. Whereas Hezekiah's God, our God, is true. Can you imagine the miraculous salvation of that? The angel of the Lord striking down thousands of enemy when there's no earthly hope, no human means of escape. But the Lord did that. Now, as we have kind of gone through the text, let me leave you with this. We've, we've covered the application here that you should pray, that prayer gives you courage. Uh, we've seen this principle of God linking himself to his people. But I, uh, God's sovereignty should give us courage as well. He controls all these things. Um, we live in a day where there seems to be increasing persecution, marginalization of the church. There may come a day when preaching what the Bible says could be labeled hate speech because we call certain things sin. But in such times, I think we read Isaiah 37 and we find courage and encouragement. We remember to pray. And I think it's interesting to see how the same themes of this chapter, the apostles, took this upon their lips when they prayed, when they were persecuted. Uh, this is why I thought I was preaching last Sunday, so I had this as your passage to read Acts chapter 4. But listen to what happens here in Acts 4 as I end here. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were... happened. For the man on whom this sign... When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage 
and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your plan and your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You notice those same themes coming up in that section, including prayer, and how it strengthened God's people. God answered that prayer. Let us, like them, pray for faithfulness in our witness in this world that needs the hope of the resurrection. Let us pray for faithfulness. Let us trust that God does what he has planned and predestined to take place. And let us find courage in Jesus Christ, who's defeated tyrants far more fierce than Sennacherib, even death itself. Let's pray in his name. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray in Jesus' name through the intercession of Jesus Christ because we have no standing to approach you because of ourselves. We don't have pure hands and a pure heart. We have trusted in idols. We've trusted in things that are the work of human hands. We've, we value them over you. And Lord, we know that we have no, nothing to stand on. Simply to your cross we cling. Oh Lord, we pray that we would rest upon Christ. Thank you that the zeal of the Lord of hosts sent us the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who was raised from the dead, just as you miraculously struck down the Assyrian army. Oh Lord, help us to be more and more people of prayer. And Lord, give us courage and boldness to be a lamp, a lamp post, a lamp stand in a dark world, proclaiming Jesus, the light of the world, proclaiming transformation given by the Holy Spirit from a loving Father. We pray all of this uh, to the Father, through, the, through the, the Son, by the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen.